Chapter Ten of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Ten: England under Henry the First, called Fine Scholar. Fine Scholar, on hearing of the Red King's death, hurried to Winchester with as much speed as Rufus himself had made. To seize the royal treasure, but the keeper of the treasure, who had been one of the hunting party in the forest, made haste to Winchester too, and arriving there at about the same time, refused to yield it up. Upon this, Fine Scholar drew his sword and threatened to kill the treasurer, who might have paid for his fidelity with his life, but that he knew longer resistance to be useless when he found the prince supported by a company of powerful barons, who declared they were determined to make him king. The treasurer therefore gave up the money and jewels of the crown, and on the third day after the death of the Red King, being a Sunday, Fine Scholar stood before the high altar in Westminster Abbey and made a solemn declaration that he would resign the church property which his brother had seized, that he would do no wrong to the nobles, and that he would restore to the people the laws of Edward the Confessor, with all the improvements of William the Conqueror. So began the reign of King Henry the First. The people were attached to their new king. Both because he had known distresses, and because he was an Englishman by birth and not a Norman, to strengthen this last hold upon them, the king wished to marry an English lady, and could think of no other wife than Maud the Good, the daughter of the King of Scotland. Although this good princess did not love the king, she was so affected by the representations the nobles made to her of the great charity it would be in her to unite the Norman and Saxon races, and prevent hatred and bloodshed between them for the future, that she consented to be his wife. After some disputing among the priests, who said that as she had been in a convent in her youth, and had worn the veil of a nun, she could not lawfully be married, against which the princess stated that her aunt, with whom she had lived in her youth, had indeed sometimes thrown a piece of black stuff over her, but for no other reason than because the nun's veil was the only dress the conquering Normans respected in girl or woman, and not because she had taken the vows of a nun, which she never had. She was declared free to marry, and was made King Henry's queen. A good queen she was, beautiful, kind-hearted, and worthy of a better husband than the king. For he was a cunning and unscrupulous man, though firm and clever. He cared very little for his word, and took any means to gain his ends. All this is shown in his treatment of his brother Robert. Robert, who had suffered him to be refreshed with water, and who had sent him the wine from his own table, when he was shut up with the crows flying below him. Parched with thirst, in the castle on the top of St. Michael's Mount, where his red brother would have let him die. Before the king began to deal with Robert, he removed and disgraced all the favorites of the late king, who were for the most part base characters much detested by the people. Flambard or Firebrand, whom the late king had made Bishop of Durham of all things in the world, Henry imprisoned in the tower. But Firebrand was a great joker and a jolly companion, and made himself so popular with the guards that they pretended to know nothing about a long rope that was sent into his prison at the bottom of a deep flagon of wine. The guards took the wine, and Firebrand took the rope, with which, when they were fast asleep, he let himself down from a window in the night, and so got cleverly aboard ship and away to Normandy. Now Robert, when his brother Fine Scholar came to the throne, was still absent in the Holy Land. Henry pretended that Robert had been made sovereign of that country, and he had been away so long that the ignorant people believed it. But behold, when Henry had been some time king of England, Robert came home to Normandy, 
having leisurely returned from Jerusalem through Italy, in which beautiful country he had enjoyed himself very much, and had married a lady as beautiful as itself. In Normandy he found Firebrand waiting to urge him to assert his claim to the English crown, and declare war against King Henry. This, after great loss of time in feasting and dancing with his beautiful Italian wife among his Norman friends, he at last did. The English in general were on King Henry's side, though many of the Normans were on Robert's. But the English sailors deserted the king, and took a great part of the English fleet over to Normandy, so that Robert came to invade this country in no foreign vessels but in English ships. The virtuous Anselm, however, whom Henry had invited back from abroad, and made Archbishop of Canterbury, was steadfast in the king's cause, and it was so well supported that the two armies, instead of fighting, made a peace. Poor Robert, who trusted anybody and everybody, readily trusted his brother the king, and agreed to go home and receive a pension from England, on condition that all his followers were fully pardoned. This the king very faithfully promised, but Robert was no sooner gone than he began to punish them. Among them was the Earl of Shrewsbury, who, on being summoned by the king to answer to five-and-forty accusations, rode away to one of his strong castles, shut himself up therein, called around him his tenants and vassals, and fought for his liberty, but was defeated and banished. Robert, with all his faults, was so true to his word that when he first heard of this nobleman having risen against his brother, he laid waste the Earl of Shrewsbury's estates in Normandy, to show the king that he would favour no breach of their treaty. Finding on better information afterwards that the Earl's only crime was having been his friend, he came over to England in his old thoughtless warm-hearted way to intercede with the king, and remind him of the solemn promise to pardon all his followers. This confidence might have put the false king to the blush, but it did not. Pretending to be very friendly, he so surrounded his brother with spies and traps, that Robert, who was quite in his power, had nothing for it but to renounce his pension and escape while he could. Getting home to Normandy, and understanding the king better now, he naturally allied himself with his old friend the Earl of Shrewsbury, who still had thirty castles in that country. This was exactly what Henry wanted. He immediately declared that Robert had broken the treaty, and next year invaded Normandy. He pretended that he came to deliver the Normans, at their own request, from his brother's misrule. There is reason to fear that his misrule was bad enough, for his beautiful wife had died, leaving him with an infant son, and his court was again so careless, dissipated, and ill-regulated, that it was said he sometimes lay in bed for a day for want of clothes to put on, his attendants having stolen all his dresses but he headed his army like a brave prince and a gallant soldier, though he had the misfortune to be taken prisoner by King Henry with four hundred of his knights. Among them was poor harmless Edgar Atheling, whom Robert loved well. Edgar was not important enough to be severe with. The king afterwards gave him a small pension, which he lived upon and died upon in peace among the quiet woods and fields of England. And Robert... Poor, kind, generous, wasteful, heedless Robert, with so many faults, and yet with virtues that might have made a better and a happier man. What was the end of him? If the king had had the magnanimity to say with a kind air, Brother, tell me, before these noblemen, that from this time you will be my faithful follower and friend, and never raise your hand against me or my forces more, he might have trusted Robert to the death. But the king was not a magnanimous man. He sentenced his brother to be confined for life in one of the royal castles. In the beginning of his imprisonment, he was allowed to ride out, guarded. But he one day broke away from his guard and galloped off. 
he had the evil fortune to ride into a swamp, where his horse stuck fast and he was taken. When the king heard of it, he ordered him to be blinded, which was done by putting a red-hot metal basin on his eyes. And so, in darkness and in prison, many years, he thought of all his past life, of the time he had wasted, of the treasure he had squandered, of the opportunities he had lost, of the youth he had thrown away, of the talents he had neglected. Sometimes, on fine autumn mornings, he would sit and think of the old hunting parties in the free forest, where he had been the foremost and the gayest. Sometimes, in the still nights, he would wake, and mourn for the many nights that had stolen past him at the gaming-table. Sometimes would seem to hear upon the melancholy wind the old songs of the minstrels. Sometimes would dream in his blindness of the light and glitter of the Norman court. Many and many a time he groped back in his fancy to Jerusalem, where he had fought so well, or at the head of his brave companions bowed his feathered helmet to the shouts of welcome greeting him in Italy, and seemed again to walk among the sunny vineyards, or on the shore of the blue sea with his lovely wife. And then, thinking of her grave, and of his fatherless boy, he would stretch out his solitary arms and weep. At length one day there lay in prison, dead, with cruel and disfiguring scars upon his eyelids, bandaged from his jailer's sight, but on which the eternal heavens looked down, a worn old man of eighty. He had once been Robert of Normandy. Pity him. At the time when Robert of Normandy was taken prisoner by his brother, Robert's little son was only five years old. This child was taken, too, and carried before the king, sobbing and crying, for young as he was, he knew he had good reason to be afraid of his royal uncle. The king was not much accustomed to pity those who were in his power, but his cold heart seemed for the moment to soften towards the boy. He was observed to make a great effort as if to prevent himself from being cruel, and ordered the child to be taken away, whereupon a certain baron, who had married a daughter of Duke Robert's, by name Heli of Saint-Saint, took charge of him tenderly. The king's gentleness did not last long. Before two years were over, he sent messengers to this lord's castle to seize the child and bring him away. The baron was not there at the time, but his servants were faithful, and carried the boy off in his sleep and hid him. When the baron came home, and was told what the king had done, he took the child abroad, and leading him by the hand went from king to king and from court to court, relating how the child had a claim to the throne of England, and how his uncle the king, knowing that he had that claim, would have murdered him, perhaps, but for his escape. The youth and innocence of the pretty little William Fitzrobert, for that was his name, made him many friends at that time. When he became a young man, the king of France, uniting with the French counts of Anjou and Flanders, supported his cause against the king of England, and took many of the king's towns and castles in Normandy. But King Henry, artful and cunning always, bribed some of William's friends with money, some with promises, some with power. He bought off the Count of Anjou by promising to marry his eldest son, also named William, to the Count's daughter. And indeed the whole trust of this king's life was such in bargains, and he believed, as many another king has done since, and as one king did in France a very little time ago, that every man's truth and honour can be bought at some price. For all this he was so afraid of William Fitzrobert and his friends, that for a long time he believed his life to be in danger, and never lay down to sleep, even in his palace surrounded by his guards, without having a sword and buckler at his bedside. To strengthen his power, the king with great ceremony betrothed his eldest daughter Matilda, 
then a child only eight years old, to be the wife of Henry V, the Emperor of Germany. To raise her marriage portion, he taxed the English people in a most oppressive manner, then treated them to a great procession, to restore their good humor, and sent Matilda away in fine state, with the German ambassadors, to be educated in the country of her future husband. And now his queen, Maud the Good, unhappily died. It was a sad thought for that gentle lady, that the only hope with which she had married a man whom she had never loved, the hope of reconciling the Norman and English races, had failed. At the very time of her death, Normandy and all France was in arms against England, for so soon as his last danger was over, King Henry had been false to all the French powers he had promised, bribed, and bought, and they had naturally united against him. After some fighting, however, in which few suffered but the unhappy common people, who always suffered whatsoever was the matter, he began to promise, bribe, and buy again, and by those means, and by the help of the Pope, who exerted himself to save more bloodshed, and by solemnly declaring over and over again that he really was in earnest this time, and would keep his word, the king made peace. One of the first consequences of this peace was that the king went over to Normandy with his son Prince William and a great retinue, to have the prince acknowledged as his successor by the Norman nobles, and to contract the promised marriage, this was one of the many promises the king had broken, between him and the daughter of the Count of Anjou. Both these things were triumphantly done, with great show and rejoicing, and on the 25th of November, in the year 1120, the whole retinue prepared to embark at the port of Barfleur for the voyage home. On that day, and at that place, there came to the king Fitzstephen, a sea-captain, and said, My liege, my father served your father all his life upon the sea. He steered the ship with the golden boy upon the prow in which your father sailed to conquer England. I beseech you to grant me the same office. I have a fair vessel in the harbour here, called the White Ship, manned by fifty sailors of renown. I pray you, sire, to let your servant have the honour of steering you in the White Ship to England. I am sorry, friend, replied the king, that my vessel is already chosen, and that I cannot, therefore, sail with the son of the man who served my father. But the prince and all his company shall go along with you in the fair White Ship, manned by the fifty sailors of renown. An hour or two afterwards the king set sail in the vessel he had chosen, accompanied by other vessels, and sailing all night with a fair and gentle wind, arrived upon the coast of England in the morning. While it was yet night, the people in some of those ships heard a faint wild cry come over the sea, and wondered what it was. Now the prince was a dissolute, debauched young man of eighteen, who bore no love to the English, and had declared that when he came to the throne he would yoke them to the plough like oxen. He went aboard the white ship, and with one hundred and forty youthful nobles like himself, among whom were eighteen noble ladies of the highest rank. All this gay company, with their servants and the fifty sailors, made three hundred souls aboard the fair white ship. "'Give three casks of wine, Fitzstephen,' said the prince, "'to the fifty sailors of renown. My father the king has sailed out of the harbour. What time is there to make merry here, and yet reach England with the rest?' "'Prince,' said Fitzstephen, before morning my fifty and the white ship shall overtake the swiftest vessel in attendance on your father the king, if we sail at midnight. Then the prince commanded to make merry, and the sailors drank out the three casks of wine, and the prince and all the noble company danced in the moonlight on the deck of the white ship. When at last she shot out of the harbour of Barfleur, there was not a sober seaman on board, but the sails were all set and the oars all going merrily. 
Fitzstephen had the helm. The gay young nobles and the beautiful ladies, wrapped in mantles of various bright colours to protect them from the cold, talked, laughed, and sang. The prince encouraged the fifty sailors to row harder yet for the honour of the white ship. Crash! A terrific cry broke from three hundred hearts. It was the cry the people in the distant vessels of the king heard faintly on the water. The white ship had struck a rock, was filling, going down. Fitzstephen hurried the prince into a boat with some few nobles. Push off, he whispered, and row to land. It is not far, and the sea is smooth. The rest of us must die. But as they rowed away fast from the sinking ship, the prince heard the voice of his sister Marie, the Countess of Perche, calling for help. He never in his life had been so good as he was then. He cried in an agony, Row back at any risk, I cannot bear to leave her. They rowed back. As the prince held out his arms to catch his sister, such numbers leaped in that the boat was overset, and in the same instant the white ship went down. Only two men floated. They both clung to the main yard of the ship, which had broken from the mast, and now supported them. One asked the other who he was. He said, I am a nobleman, Godfrey by name, the son of Gilbert de Ligel. And you, said he, I am Birold, a poor butcher of Rouen, was the answer. Then they said together, Lord, be merciful to us both, and tried to encourage one another, as they drifted in the cold, benumbing sea on that unfortunate November night. By and by another man came swimming towards them, whom they knew, when he pushed aside his long wet hair, to be Fitzstephen. "'Where is the prince?' said he. "'Gone, gone,' the two cried together. "'Neither he, nor his brother, nor his sister, nor the king's niece, nor her brother, nor any of all the brave three hundred, noble or commoner, except we three, has risen above the water.' Fitzstephen, with a ghastly face, cried, "'Woe, woe to me!' and sunk to the bottom." The other two clung to the yard for some hours. At length the young noble said faintly, I am exhausted and chilled with the cold, and can hold no longer. Farewell, good friend, God preserve you. So he dropped and sunk, and of all the brilliant crowd the poor butcher of Rouen alone was saved. In the morning some fishermen saw him floating in his sheepskin coat and got him into their boat, the sole relator of the dismal tale. For three days no one dared to carry the intelligence to the king. At length they sent into his presence a little boy, who, weeping bitterly and kneeling at his feet, told him that the white ship was lost with all on board. The king fell to the ground like a dead man, and never, never afterwards was seen to smile. But he plotted again, and he promised again, and bribed and bought again in his old deceitful way. Having no son to succeed him after all his pains— the prince will never yoke us to the plough now, said the English people. He took a second wife, Adelaide, or Alice, a duke's daughter, and the pope's niece. Having no more children, however, he proposed to the barons to swear that they would recognize as his successor his daughter Matilda, whom, as she was now a widow, he had married to the eldest son of the Count of Anjou, Geoffrey, surnamed Plantagenet, from a custom he had of wearing a sprig of flowering broom, called Jeannette, in French, in his cap for a feather. As one false man usually makes many, and as a false king in particular is pretty certain to make a false court, the barons took the oath about the succession of Matilda and her children after her, twice over, without in the least intending to keep it. 
the king was now relieved from any remaining fears of William Fitzrobert by his death in the monastery of St. Ober, in France, at twenty-six years old, of a pike wound in the hand. And as Matilda gave birth to three sons, he thought the succession to the throne secure. He spent most of the latter part of his life, which was troubled by family quarrels, in Normandy, to be near Matilda. When he had reigned upward of thirty-five years and was sixty-seven years old, he died of an indigestion and fever, brought on by eating, when he was far from well, of a fish called lamprey, against which he had often been cautioned by his physicians. His remains were brought over to Reading Abbey to be buried. You may perhaps hear the cunning and promise-breaking of King Henry I called policy by some people, and diplomacy by others. Neither of these fine words will in the least mean that it was true, and nothing that is not true can possibly be good. His greatest merit that I know of was his love of learning. I should have given him greater credit even for that, if it had been strong enough to induce him to spare the eyes of a certain poet he once took prisoner, who was a knight besides. But he ordered the poet's eyes to be torn from his head, because he had laughed at him in his verses. And the poet, in the pain of that torture, dashed out his own brains against his prison wall. King Henry I was avaricious, revengeful, and so false, that I suppose a man never lived whose word was less to be relied upon. End of chapter 10